Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we travel beyond news headlines and discuss the biggest issues affecting the world's most exciting region. I'm Vincent Ni, and I'm Andrew People. There's lots of coronavirus-related issues these days in the headlines. The U.S. and China have been dragged into a war of words over the origin of this global pandemic. On top of that, of course, China's face mask diplomacy, as some have called it, has caused concerns both in Washington and in Brussels. But it's raised an interesting question too: Is this the moment that China replaces the West in taking the lead in a global health emergency and beyond? Obviously, there are diverging views on this particular question, and it's still perhaps too early to say how this crisis will pan out for both China and the West. But I thought it's also a profound question to ask at this particular juncture, as many have been debating about the changing global order even before COVID-19. So joining us today from Hong Kong is Courtney Feng, who teaches at Hong Kong University. She's also associate fellow of Chatham House here in London. And from Washington D.C., we have Rush Doshi. He's the director of the Brookings China Strategy Initiative. Thank you very much both for joining us today. Let's start with you, Rush. Will this crisis serve as a catalyst for China to assume global leadership, as many have been saying these days? Well,、um, I would say that it's like you said, a bit early to tell for sure whether or not China will be able to, to sort of displace the United States as as a leader. That seems unlikely. But what is clearly the case is that if there is a mantle. For global leadership, the U.S. has somewhat dropped it, and China is trying to pick it up.、Um, there are real obstacles to China's efforts to do so. Of course, some of its masks haven't been particularly effective. Some of its narratives are alienating. People are well aware, of course, of the original origins of the crisis, and there remains quite a bit of anger directed at China. But despite all those obstacles, the crisis has laid bare the inadequacy of U.S. state capacity in a way that is, I think, quite shocking for many around the world. Would have expected the country to handle the crisis better. The absence of political leadership in the United States to handle the crisis only amplified these concerns. And so, when you take it in totality, the inadequacy of the U.S. response, the inability of the U.S. to really be involved in leading the global response, and the insufficiency of U.S. industrial capacity when it comes to manufacturing what the crisis needs, taken together,、uh, serve as a blow to U.S. leadership and prestige, even if it's not necessarily going to automatically create the opportunity for China to become or be the global leader. And Courtney, you are in the region. So, what is the view from Beijing on this particular observation? Well, I think I agree with Rush's point that it's still very early to tell. But I am personally a little bit skeptical of those that claim that this is going to be China's moment to usurp global leadership.、Um, in as much as exactly as Rush pointed out, that global leadership has sort of been left to the wayside.、Um, the U.S. inability to get its act together obviously facilitates the idea that the U.S. is on its own decline. But at the same time, I look for evidence of China's willingness to assert global leadership, and that doesn't mean that you just wait. For clear and neat issues as they turn up, you have to be willing to catch the ball as the ball is being chucked around, being dropped on the floor. And I haven't really seen that yet. We see very predictable measures like the so-called mass diplomacy, small predictable measures that China's done just enough data sharing with the WHO to not be chided for not having given any data as it did during SARS. But again, if you look at other evidence of China's attempt to sort of seek this global leadership. 
you know, that hasn't really been there. If we turn our mind back to March, when China was actually heading the UN Security Council, they were the rotating president for that month. And you saw that Beijing arrived organized to push through its agenda at the UN Security Council. It wouldn't let the pandemic derail its plans of work. But at the same time, it was a real lost opportunity for Beijing to really seize the mantle and push through this idea that Beijing had something to say about this emerging threat to international peace and security. And indeed, China sort of left the ball to France, who's trying to push through something through the G7 or the P5, or even left the ball to Estonia, a rotating member at the UN Security Council that's trying to at least get a resolution through that talks about the COVID-19 pandemic without any mention of a threat to international peace and security, given Beijing's real sensitivities to the sort of ever-expanding definition of things that fit under this particular type of name of a threat to international peace and security. So I think from where I sit, I'm sort of still waiting for there to be evidence that China is trying to usurp a mantle that has rather been ditched, um, which I think is, again, two related but still quite separate concepts. Yeah. It's very interesting what you're both saying there. Rush, you wrote a pretty widely read piece on Foreign Affairs' website recently talking about how, in a sense, this could be almost a Suez moment for the US. It's a reference to the point in the 1950s where a massive blunder in foreign policy by the UK kind of is seen by many as being the kind of definitive end of the British Empire and, the, and Britain's leadership of the world. The difference, it seems to me, in some ways, and there are many differences in, really uh, between that situation then and the situation we find ourselves in now, is that when Britain was sort of falling to the wayside, and by the 1950s it had already fallen largely to the wayside in terms of global leadership, you know, the US was there ready to take over, ready and willing to take over, really. And right now we're in this kind of strange situation where people aren't looking to the US for leadership in a global crisis like this, which is a, a major change. But on the other hand, there isn't a sort of power, and it should be China, really, there isn't a power that's ready or willing to step into its place. Is that a fair comment, would you say? Well, I think um, there's a lot of truth to that. And no analogy is perfectly literal. I think no, the way that course. we describe mm -hmm. the Suez moment is less of a moment of eclipse, as you rightly note. Uh, the U.S. had already eclipsed Great Britain by then, and China has certainly not eclipsed the United States in material foundations of power. But I think the Suez moment is an unmasking. It's an unveiling. It's a moment that reveals the amount of decay within the system, that reveals the unsustainability of certain global commitments. In the U.S. case, it's not quite the same, but it's still an unmasking. The unmasking here applies to the illusion of domestic governance and competence that the United States had cultivated for a long time. You know, some say that the coronavirus has not changed the structural foundations of the world. In other words, the U.S. still retains the world's most powerful military. It still retains the reserve currency and the financial advantages that come with it. Mm. The U.S. military cannot produce tickets and Federal Reserve cannot print vaccines. In other words, domestic capacity matters and competence matters in this moment. And this crisis could, could go on for months, if not longer. And so when you stretch that out, the inadequacy of the government uh, to handle the crisis in the United States over the course of months or even a year, then the damage is compounded. And we have to also keep in mind one very simple fact, which is that anything we call structural at the US position, almost anything that we call, is in many ways dependent on competent governance. That military was built by a competent government. That Federal Reserve position in the United States was built on an economy that in turn benefited from US stewardship in the 20th century. Those capacities are, are gone. So there's an obvious moment here for US investment and renewal and its domestic capacity. And that's why we say in the piece, of course, 
that perhaps one of the most important sets of factors for whether or not there is a moment that China can even take advantage of is the U.S. domestic response. And I think that when the rest of the world kind of watches as, you know, states within the United States don't coordinate properly, the federal government doesn't step in properly, you have the government buying ventilators and equipment from states or rather intervening to prevent them from acquiring it, it doesn't look like there's an orderly plan to get the country out. And meanwhile, when you look across the rest of the world, there are countries that are doing better that seem to be prepared to handle whatever might be a reopening of their own economies or a second wave of infection. And so those are those are some of the most important factors in shaping what we call the, the Suez moment in the 21st century. Yeah, it's a very cogent argument that you're making. And obviously, you're based in the U.S. To what extent do you think that people broadly in the U.S. feel that we're at this kind of moment. I mean, on the one hand, yeah. you probably have the people like yourself who are arguing that the US response has been poor organizationally and, and has unmasked almost the decay within the system. But of course, there are going to be the Trump supporters in particular out there who very much are following the Trump line that actually everything's been fine. They've done as well as they could possibly do. And, you know, in a sense that America is still great, <laughs> um, we can still make America great again, it keep is. America great. Um, right. You know, to what extent do you feel that there's a mood abroad? I think, again, back in the 1950s in the UK, you'd have probably had a sense that people in Britain were sort of tired of having the British Empire. They didn't really care about it anymore. Whereas I, I don't know what what's the equivalent sort of feeling amongst the people in America. You raise an extremely important point, which is that there is a domestic public opinion component to all of this. And you're right to suggest that one of the questions that's critical is how do the American people feel about U.S. global leadership and the trajectory of the country? And for many years, the feelings have been negative. Um, and those have amplified you know, after the financial crisis, and they continue uh, with the sort of nationalist bent in the Republican Party. So there's a question, real question, about what the U.S. gets out of its international commitments. Um, other polls suggest strong support for free trade or interest in being engaged. So the, the polling picture is certainly mixed. But I think that one area where it's not mixed is that most people think the country is on the wrong track. And with that belief, there may be, of course, foreign policy implications. When it comes to you know, concrete manifestations of U.S. domestic capacity failure in this crisis, the amount of examples is really stunning. The U.S. federal government has struggled to get stimulus checks in the hands of American citizens. It's taken weeks, it'll likely mm. take months in other cases. Well, other countries, including Germany and New Zealand, have been able to do it in a matter of days. These yeah. are not extraordinary. I mean, the U.S. may be a financial superpower with the global reserve currency, but if it can't get cash in the hands of its small businesses and citizens, that's a problem. The Small Business Authority has been tasked with making sure that, again, small businesses that are bearing much of the brunt of this crisis, they don't have the capital or the funds to sustain cash flow beyond a few months, they're not able to get the help they need in a timely fashion either. And the unemployment system in the country is done state by state. It's not national. And as a direct result, it's been perhaps underfunded because governors don't want to report poor statistics. They want to make it a little challenging to file for unemployment, historically anyway. As a result, today, you have some unemployment offices requiring faxes to be sent in to file for unemployment. Others requiring people to show up in person during a pandemic to get forms because the website or the phone lines are overwhelmed. And still others running on websites that don't work at all or only work on mobile phones. Or many people, at least 30% of the country, doesn't have a laptop or a computer to access them. All of that infrastructure runs yeah. on databases that use COBOL, a 60-year-old programming language that few know how to modify today. That is not a problem in 
many other countries in the world, but it is a sign of benign neglect or anti-government malice that has, to some degree, weakened the capacity of the country, not only to handle the virus, but also to coordinate the economic recovery. Right, indeed. Courtney, is this also the view shared in China? Well, I mean, I, I think there's certainly an opportunity for China to try and rewrite the narrative that China was the source of this particular infection, this particular epidemic, and that China doesn't have to be simply seen as the source of the epidemic, and they have a moment now to try and rewrite the narrative that they are indeed part of the solution. And certainly the chaotic somewhat shambolic response that you're seeing coming out of Washington, D.C., the inability to coordinate, the inability to get resources, um, Trump's regular meltdowns during his daily press briefings, that these things, again, send a signal that China may perhaps have a point, that there is something to be gained from having multipolarity and China's facilitation for the so-called shared future. Now they're talking about having a health silk road being offered through this BRI. And so I think there is something to say now that China does have this particular opening being presented in order to try and rewrite this narrative in ways that are favorable to China. But I think, again, you know, it's, it's the concept here that I'd like to sort of be clear about is that, you know, the attempt to rewrite a narrative is not the same thing as saying that you're ready and willing. Exactly as Andrew pointed out, you're waiting to, you know, assume the mantle and take on this global responsibility. And again, you know, you can see China making predictable, measured, scaled moves from the sidelines. But I'm not sort of looking at this moment thinking, wow, they're ready to sort of take over now and try and reshape the system hook, line and sinker. And so I think, again, to sort of caution that more um, expansive view of China's ambitions at this particular moment. One of the things that we've been looking at as part of our work on China, the China Strategy Initiative, is China's internal discourse on the pandemic. And of course, some of that is going to be propaganda and should not be taken at face value. But at the same time, there is a kernel of truth behind Chinese propaganda. That's what makes it so important to read it properly mm-hmm. and to see where lines are shifting, policies are shifting, guidelines are shifting, etc. In our reading of some of it, we've noticed and specifically some of the commentary from prominent think tank, you know, folks within China, a belief that the pandemic does accelerate trends that were already underway. You know, President Xi had mentioned at the Central Foreign Affairs Work Conference of 2018 that China was supposed to lead the reform of the global governance system, not simply actively participate as had previously been the case. And others are saying now, uh, presently, that because of the virus, there is an opportunity for China to more actively consider what leadership looks like. And I very much agree with Courtney that at the institutional level and at other levels, there hasn't been the kind of Chinese leadership that the moment might even call for or that you might expect Beijing to pursue. But I think the interest is there, the ambition is there, the intention is there, but the execution is still lacking. Uh, We have historically underestimated China for decades. You know, there were people who said they'd never build a carrier, never pursue regional hegemony, never have a technologically advanced economy, never be able to compete in high-tech industries, and all of those predictions were wrong. I think we should be similarly modest about the claim that, you know, China will not seek to somehow shape or lead the international system. Indeed, it's already done so. As according others have shown in international institutions, there's a great degree of activism. In standard-setting mm. bodies, a great degree of activism. Right now, not a great degree of pandemic leadership in key institutions, but there might be other forms of leadership we shouldn't ignore. And I'll just give you one example. The mask diplomacy stuff, you know, it's clear that a lot of those masks are substandard, but China is already working quickly to regulate the production of those masks so that they can export them at higher quality. And regardless of whether or not some of those are problematic, and and many are, the simple industrial strength of the world on building what is needed, manufacturing what is needed to address the crisis, that's concentrated in China, and that's going to be the case for months to come, whether it's masks or APIs, or possibly even surge manufacturing of ventilators, uh, antibiotics, all of that is going to come from largely one country, which creates enormous amounts of leverage, 
we tend to think of leadership in sensual, institutionalized, and liberal terms that the U.S. has really set. And our piece discusses it in those terms. But leadership can also be thought of as, as an exercise in mixing coercion and consent. And with this kind of leverage that China has over the material substructure of the economy and the pandemic response, there will be implications politically for those countries that don't to a certain point. Courtney, could you talk a little bit about, I think it's been mentioned already, but you've done a lot of research on China's role within multilateral institutions. And obviously, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of controversy about China's position with regard in particular to the WHO, the World Health Organization. Can you talk a little bit about what China's been doing in multilateral institutions in recent years and whether what they have been doing is a manifestation on the one hand of just China's growing role in the world economy and world geopolitics or whether it's part of a strategy in China to assert more leadership over global affairs. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe how the coronavirus episode plays into that? So in part, China's growing role in these formal multilateral institutions is tethered to its growing economy. So, for example, there's been some surprise that there is an increasing Chinese presence in terms of having a number of international civil servants staffing at the UN Secretariat. But frankly, those numbers are still actually a little bit low, um, Mm. given how much China pays into the UN system formally as part of the regular budget. So an increasing presence over the decades, as you would anticipate, as China's increasing budgetary contributions they have to be tethered together. And you do see, again, these sort of, you know, moves that were seen a couple of years ago as being relatively small and actually quite innocuous. So Beijing inserting particular phrases. So Shiisms were going into these UN Security Council, UN General Assembly resolutions. So, you know, statements referring to the relevance of BRI for Afghanistan's peace and security or the relevance of BRI for African development. And I think at first, you know, if you talk to a number of diplomats negotiating and trying to figure out the exact text of these, you know, drafting processes, they kind of looked at this language and thought, oh, it's sort of irrelevant. What's BRI got to do with satellites in space? We can let this go through. But over the last couple of years, there's been sort of increasing sense of alarm bells going off that now this language appears to be turning up everywhere. Mm. Um, And I think, again, I would sort of caution the idea that it's that China's been biding its time doing and waiting for this coronavirus moment. Well, I, I think what we're actually seeing is that there's been a steady, solid engagement and the areas that Beijing chooses throughout the multilateral system. So the areas where it's interested in engaging, it's been willing to come and participate, even when those institutions are not at all favored to Beijing. They don't really like the UN Human Rights Council, for example, but they've right. been pitching in since the reform of the UN Human Rights Commission to the UN Human Rights Council at the start of the 2000s. And they've actually now done well by being a member of the system, shaping the rules from within, that they're now in a position that China's just been elected to represent the Asian region in terms of choosing all the special rapporteurs that will go out for the next couple of years to do the functional um, investigations for particular human rights concerns globally. So whether it be the rights of the disabled, the rights of religious minorities, etc., China will have a hand now in choosing who those rapporteurs are and what is the extent of their mandate. China is by no means a massive supporter or a great enthusiastic member of the UN Human Rights Council, but by being within the system and helping to establish part of this so-called rules-based international order, Beijing has actually found a way to shape the rules to their interest. And so I think just the last thing to highlight coming out of this is that, you know, one other angle coming out of your question, Andrew, is that we can see that there actually is specific interest in seeking these leadership posts. So I'm not talking now about sort of discourse. I'm not talking about sort of making sure you've got a diplomat at every single meeting ad nauseum all the time. I'm not Mm. talking about whether or not you have 
enough staff in the system per how much you pay for the system to work. You're now seeking these elected or selected positions. And Beijing has been very serious. They've brought a real candidate every time. And so we're at a point now that China heads four out of 15 UN specialized agencies at a time when some in the Washington Beltway space were saying, well, who cares? It's the you know right. International Civil Aviation Organization. You know, who even knows what the UN Industrial Development Organization does? Right. But now China's in a real position in terms of helping us understand the relevance of 5G as it affects crop development, as it affects policing standards that China will be promoting through its smart cities initiative that it's put forward as it came on to take the headship of the UNIDO. UNIDO. And all of these still come back to real questions that haven't been addressed about the nature between personal privacy, state control and information flow, data access, data privacy. We also know that China's had interests in terms of trying to take the lead at the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations. Of course, they had a failed attempt to get elected at the World Intellectual Property Organization. And again, China offered a candidate that did not get selected by the UN Secretary General to head the UN Office of Drug and Crime. So I certainly don't want to give you the perception that Beijing is here full court press at all turns. But you can see that Beijing has shown an interest at the only institution through the United Nations that may have the ability to tame U.S. power, where, of course, China can maximize each country has a vote. And many countries are very skeptical about so-called U.S. leadership, so-called human rights, so-called humanitarian interventions, that Beijing has been able to harness that system. And we are now are seeing slowly Beijing's attempts to try and rewrite these rules from the inside, which actually is quite fascinating given a lot of the focus, a lot of the current interest about the so-called rules-based international order. So a question following on for both of you really is at the same time, of course, we've seen, you know, the latest kind of almost tantrum, I guess, on on the part of the Trump administration over the WHO and, and stopping funding there. That skepticism about these international institutions that the Trump administration has, is that a permanent part of U.S. foreign policy now? Do you see that as something that could switch back, say, if Biden wins the election this year? Or is it something that's you know, going to be a process whereby China's sort of creeping influence over these institutions keeps growing and the U.S. willingly almost cedes ground to China? Uh, when it comes to U.S. support for multilateral institutions, there is a sort of partisan difference on those questions. I think in general, the administration is more skeptical, not only the WHO, but of other institutions and financing them. Democrats tend to be more supportive. But the big question is, after the Trump presidency, will Congress continue to support these institutions when they're mm. believed to be perhaps beholden to China or inadequately deferential to U.S. preferences and prerogatives. Uh, some will say, hey, the U.S. really needs to continue to fund these institutions to have influence. Others will say it's time to just pull the plug. And so how that politics specifically within Congress evolves will, will really determine the answer. And Courtney, your, your feeling on this in terms of what you were saying about China's growing influence, do you see that as being something that the U.S. is going to continue to cede almost to China? Well, I mean, I, I think the thing that concerns me that Russia is exactly right, that you have to also be, you know, have a focus on what's going on within the US Congress. And I think the thing that concerns me is that the previous frames in the 1990s, early 2000s, when again, you know, you think of this as the low time for US UN relations, was that it was very much of the view that the United Nations and, and all of its different agencies were simply here to try and enforce 
their own views upon Americans and America is a city on a hill and it's a leading example and does not need to have any sort of interference by the United Nations system. But I think the concern I have now is that, you know, even if you look at sort of the threats made if China was to win the headship, the elected headship of the World Intellectual Property Organization, there were real mm. research papers coming out. The Heritage Foundation actually did some work on this, asking the question whether or not the U.S. should be organizing its own standalone, independent, global intellectual property rights alternative. And so I think it is worrisome that now the frame is becoming the sort of big bad China's come and arrived and these are becoming these China-centric institutions. Indeed, it does sound like the U.S. at this point is taking it seriously in terms of now trying to understand how these systems work, at least trying to now have a special envoy for multilateral integrity. So newly created positions seated at the State Department Apparently, from the reporting, this is basically meant to be attempting to counter so-called Chinese influence throughout the system. But I think, again, it is very important to emphasize that on the best day, Trump has offered benign neglect when it comes to these systems. And I think, again, there's been a lot of sound and a lot of fury about his sort of withholding while he investigates whether or not the WHO is China-centric. But again, you have to have a sense of more detail. I mean, it's not the case that the U.S. has been paying its dues since 2019 either. There are about 100 million U.S. dollars owed now between 2019 and 2020 accounts owed to the WHO. And again, a lot of these funds are actually tapped to deal with polio and measles. So the long-term effect of sort of withholding U.S. funding, even though you have agencies and other states willing to step into the breach to try and offer offset the U.S. hold, this is still a concern because you may be actually hampering the agency, the World Health Organization, from doing all the other good work it does do, never mind the concerns about how it's handled this particular pandemic. And again, I mean, I think another point just to note that the U.S. didn't actually fill its seat that it's had in its type of WHO advisory body. That seat's been vacant since 2018. So it goes back to the point I was saying earlier that China does actually turn up to play. And that is very important. Yeah. You have to be in the system in order to actually try and correct it. Now, this kind of divergent views isn't really new. I mean, years ago, we had this very similar debate in the West about whether countries should join AIB, uh, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that in the case of AIB, there were some debates within the United States about whether U.S. should actually join AIB and shape it from inside, as so many European countries sought to do and were quite successful in doing. The initial proposals of AIB suggested a, a much more China-centric institution, a much less institutionalized institution than what we ended up getting. And that was in part because other countries joined and shaped it from inside. Had the U.S. been involved, it's possible AIB would even more reflect U.S. preferences on some key issues. But the U.S. was unable to join, not only because of a decision sort of at the top, but also because of congressional, rather a concern about being able to raise the funds from Congress needed to actually help capitalize the bank. Of course, all the countries that joined had to contribute funds, and it wasn't clear the U.S. could do that. So that AIB sort of presages the situation we're in now, just as it was difficult then to find funding to join a multilateral institution, now it might be difficult to find funding to sustain U.S. involvement in existing institutions that ironically it very much helped establish in the first place. I think many people believe the right strategy, per Courtney's point, is to engage these institutions, to contribute to them, and to shape them. But the politics of it may cut a different way. And how that struggle is adjudicated within Congress over the next few years will be very consequential for the shape of the multilateral system in the period ahead. 
Now, talking about global leadership and the regional order, do you think we are paying too much attention to just U.S. and China, U.S. versus China great power competition? But what about other regional players? For example, Japan is also a prominent player, and Korea, South Korea these days is also being cited as a successful example, right? You're absolutely right that,、uh, that a lot of other countries in the world have a, a say not only in the shape of the multilateral architecture, but in questions of how to manage the coronavirus, in questions of how to set standards on the digital economy,、um, as Courtney was discussing. So yes, I mean,、uh, in many ways, the competition that the U.S. and China are involved in for influence plays out across the rest of the world. We just saw, you know, a, a month ago, China published, for example, propaganda videos in Arabic, in Arabic. Uh, for Arabic language audiences, suggesting that the coronavirus was created by the U.S. military,、um, that just goes to show that even China is thinking that you know it's important to win public opinion in different corners of the world, and that even you know even applies on a, on a grander scale when it comes to mobilizing other countries for, for policy priorities. When the U.S. talks about setting up alternative institutions, it's going to need partners to do that. So again, in many ways, the competition for influence will play out. Across the world, and that means countries like Japan, like India, countries across Africa,、uh, European U.S. allies, and countries in Central and Eastern Europe, Latin America—all parts of the world will matter and have influence on a variety of different questions. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, had a piece in the Economist today, the day that we're recording this, arguing that in a world, as we've discussed, where America's leadership is fading, but China is not necessarily. Ready or accepted as being its successor, maybe it's time for the EU, Japan, other countries to step up and sort of reinvigorate some of these institutions, like from the G20 to the WHO. How realistic do you actually think that is, though? I mean, the EU, for example, has plenty of its own problems, potentially another economic financial crisis that might stem from the coronavirus. When you look at Italy and, and elsewhere. I just wonder if those other sorts of countries, even Japan itself, where they've just declared a state of emergency today, whether they're ready really to step up in the way that maybe Kevin Rudd would like to see. I mean, I think I'm slightly more cautious, I guess, compared to the former prime minister, in, in the sense that if you look at all these examples、um, that I guess he's citing, the European Union, Japan. They're not necessarily going around citing themselves as these great examples of leadership. So unlike Trump, unlike Xi, and I think again, you're sort of seeing while that this disease may be the result of globalization, what you are also seeing is this sort of hyperlocal response, in the sense that you know the South Korean response has been to try and hold on to the idea that you can have a democracy as you are fighting a pandemic. So we can see. Their entirely well-organized and very reasonable response to trying to hold elections,、um, with great success over the last couple of days. Again, you can see that the measures that New Zealand justified quite early on, effectively shutting its borders. I mean, a country of four million that actually has four million tourists a year that come, effectively shut its borders first, and you know, made a justification for that particular move to justify to protect the. Sort of meager health resources that New Zealand had prepared for, and then that was kind of that. And I think again, you know, you look at Taiwan's response as this self-governing 23 million person island.、Um, again, they had no issues in terms of pushing through the requisition of masks that would have been sold on the open market in the initial opening throws of this particular. You know, once they realized the epidemic could very well be coming to Taiwan too. And so I think again, I'd be kind of cautious that we are looking at this sort of moment where there are these states trying to assume leadership. I think the states that have done quite well have been 
willing to say that they've done quite well. But again, there are very particular circumstances shaping how these states have responded. And often it's been the smaller states first that have actually made quite an effective move, in part because they don't have any other opportunity. The ability to acquire this type of equipment, the ability to try and ramp up production at home is just not there. And so I think, again, that that does sort of open the door to ask yourself about what type of leadership we're looking for. And I think, again, we are seeing this sort of more local expectation, more locally developed responses. But whether or not these are actually exportable or able to be modified elsewhere is, again, something that remains for debate. Right. That's a fascinating end thoughts to today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Courtney Feng from Hong Kong and Rush Doshi in Washington, D.C. And of course, my thanks to co-host Andrew People and our producers Jason Lee, as well as Rebecca Bailey. And thanks so much for listening to us. Until next time. <laughs>